this thing on? It's recording. We would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation upon whose ancestral lands our city campus now stands. We would also like to pay respect to the elders, both past and present, acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of knowledge for this land. All right, dear listeners, welcome back to season three, episode 12 of The Bar. I'm Brayden. I'm Perina. And uh, we're very lucky to have you for the last episode of this semester. Although I do think we will be having some ad hoc episodes in between semesters, of course, Mm -hmm. because uh, you guys would miss us too much if we didn't do that. We couldn't do that to our, you know, dear listeners. We (laughs) have to give out amazing content. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. can you believe it's episode 12 already? I actually can't. Like, this semester has flown. I think this happens every semester, though. Like, the first couple weeks seem a bit slow, and then, bang, it's week 11, and you're like, whoa. You're, like, crying about finals. (laughs) (laughs) That was quick. I can't believe we're here already. I know. But the beauty of that is the closer we are to finals is the closer we are to Holiday. the break. Yeah. Exactly. That one any... month sweet break. Exactly. Do you have any uh, any cool plans for the break? Um, Other than just binge watching Netflix, <laughs> going out <laughs> with my friends and catching up on social life again. Mm. Not much. And probably just like working. So like really basic holiday plans. Yeah. What well, about you? I, um, I have... Splendor in the Grass in July. Oh, yeah, true, 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 you do. I'm not sure where that slots in um, in regards to the break, though. I don't know the exact dates of when next semester starts. It, I think Splendor's at the end of July, um, and then the yeah. next semester starts in the first week of August, for law at least. And I yeah. think with business, it's always like a week earlier. Not yeah, too sure. something like that. No, I think the next semester starts at the beginning of August. Yeah. So I think Splendor will be the thing that caps off Your um, my holidays exactly. and then we'll be back at uni the next week. So I guess yeah. that's something to look forward to, but that's like right at the end of the break. I think I'll be doing very much what you were talking about mm. at the beginning of the break. Uh, unfortunately, it's winter, so I can't, you know, hit the beach or anything. <laughs> so Surely you can. If there's one sunny day out of the month, you got to go and like, you know... Make the most out of it. Look, I'm not British. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can no hit way. the beach in, uh, in freezing weather. Um, my wetsuit probably doesn't fit me anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll see how that goes. But, oh, I mean, yeah. we could move straight to our weekly specials. We could do that. And, you know, we could start with you, Brayden. <laughs> <laughs> how do you always do this to me? I love hearing about your week and then just sort of judging myself and seeing if I've actually had a good week or not. Okay, well, uh, I guess I'd start with Clarkship Networking Evening. That happened recently on the 9th of May, Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a great time there. I think um, the careers team did a very cool job putting that all together. Uh, It was nice to see all the firms in one place in an in-person event, which seems to be a bit rarer nowadays, um, but hopefully we're on our way to it being a bit more normal. Yeah. Definitely. I yeah. saw it on socials as well, like popping up on LinkedIn. Really regretted not going because I had work, um, <laughs> so I couldn't have come in. But it looked amazing. All the firms seemed so excited to meet all of these UTS law students. So it was great to see 
that being reciprocated both ways as well. Yeah, and look, Prina, there's always next year. There I don't is think always next Clarkship year. Networking Evening's going anywhere on no. the uh, on the careers calendar, so keep your eyes peeled for that, I guess. Definitely will, yeah. Also, what I've done in the past week is uh, the Macmillan Night um, at Oxford Art Factory. So for those of you who don't know what that is, I know Oxford Art regularly does these events where they have, like, one artist mm-hmm. that themes the night. I've re- I think they've done Taylor Swift before... Um, oh, yeah, nice. I think they did Flume uh, versus Rufus at one stage, Rufus Do Soul. Oh, yeah. Which I'm a bit bummed that I missed after this night. But, yeah, it was uh, it was, it was held recently just after my birthday. And so uh, Mac Miller being one of my favorite artists, the the boys were like, oh, we got to go to this. we got to go to this. Um, and so we, we got tickets. So I'm quite, um, quite reasonable. Mm. And I guess the thing that I was worried about was that it was just like a marketing stunt, like that they were just going to say, because I'd never been to one of these theme nights before, they were just going to say it's a Mac Miller theme night and they'd play two Mac Miller songs and, and then just it. play club songs. Oh, no. But fortunately, it wasn't like that at all. Um, they played a litany of Mac Miller songs, some rare tracks as well. As a Mac Miller fan, I was very appreciative <laughs> uh, and I was screaming out all the lyrics on the on the dance floor. That's you know. so good. So yeah, I had a good time there. Uh, thanks to the boys for taking me out. Um, <laughs> anyway, Farina, how about you tell me about your weekly specials? Well, I um, had a couple of things going on. Mainly just, you know, studying and like doing my assignments that I do quite soon. So that's all the boring stuff. Very Kansas-y yet again. <laughs> um, we had Mother's Day on Sunday, yeah. which was amazing. Um, gave my mum a couple of gifts, um, like, you know, cooked her some stuff, flowers, like the whole thing. Couldn't go out with her because I had an assignment again. So everyone else went out of the house except oh, no. me. So it was like my mum, my dad, my sister. They went to like a brunch thing with a family friend so they were all having fun while I was just at home questioning my life decisions <laughs> although it would have been good to not get distracted while doing your assignment if there was no one at home that's true <laughs> but in saying that did I do a lot of my assignment no I didn't so oh, no. I'm a I'm like a really serial procrastinator so mm. it doesn't work when you have like a 15 page report during the week <laughs> but you know, diamonds are made under pressure. <laughs> so that's what I tell myself when I'm doing an assignment like three days before it's due. And it always works out. So... Look, this isn't advice either. <laughs> no, again, once again, no. And I would never do this for law, by the way. I will do it for my business units because I know I can. But mm-hmm. with law, uh, definitely not. I would not advise <laughs> you doing like a 10-page report two days before it's due. Please don't ever do that. Yeah, but you can leave that integrating business perspectives assignment to, you know, a couple of days before. You can, definitely can. <laughs> what else did I do? I went to Market City, which mm-hmm. is near Haymarket yeah. on Saturday. And I was just with my friend um, and we were like going through like markets and like the different costumes and stuff. And I saw so many good themed costumes that I could potentially be buying for LSS events coming up <laughs> later this year. Later next semester, I think. Yeah, like. Well, that's a that's a cheat code for uh, anyone who's looking for a themed costume. Exactly. Head down to Market City. And like buy heaps of stuff, and they give you like a better price as well. Don't yeah, be afraid all... to like bargain a little bit. <laughs> like, especially you business students, you might as well make the most of each opportunity. <laughs> or even law students who do negotiations. Oh yeah, put your <laughs> next skills to use. Are you gonna be positional, or are you gonna look for a, a mutually beneficial outcome? Look, it really depends on the seller, doesn't it? Yeah, look, you got to tailor to, uh, to whoever, whoever you're, you're buying from. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Are you a, are you a bargainer? Avidly, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, like, I was... I lived in India for a while, so, you know, my days consisted of going to the market with my mom and her, like, bargaining over, like, a piece of fruit. And that's where I learned it. Ah. And I'm not that great. I'm not as great as, like, my grandparents or my mom, but, like, definitely a lot better than some of the people I've seen here. Oh, my parents will have a tactic um, when they go buy cars where it's, like, my dad's the one who really wants a car, like, and my mom's like, we don't need a car, (laughs) like, we don't need to buy this. Like, oh, I don't really like this. So it's like kind of like good the, cop, bad cop yeah, the, the classic. And uh, and it is quite effective, actually. Um, is it something they talk about earlier? And then they're like, okay, I'll do this, you do that. And <laughs> then they go in with that mindset? Or is it just like, nah? If, if anything, it's actually like a finely honed skill that they've had over the years. Because I think they originally like told me about it when I was really young. <laughs> and then I've just seen them because like, of course... You know, occasionally we go along to the car dealerships as well over the years. Um, and I just watch them work their magic. Um, and it's pretty funny. It's fun to see, isn't it? Yeah. But I first learned about the concept of bartering or like oh, bargaining yeah. when I was on holidays in Thailand. I was only eight years old. Love that. And not only did I learn it there, but I like sort of first learned about the concept of foreign currency and things like that. And in Thailand, the currency is called the Thai baht. Yeah. Spelled B-A-H-T, H-T. I believe. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't know that. I was only eight. So I thought that, like, bartering was, like, such an integral part of Thai culture <laughs> that they named the currency after it. <laughs> oh, no. Look how they love it so much they've named it after it. It was almost like it was a sport for every, like, shop owner. Like, that's what I thought. Obviously, like, I don't think that's actually the case now. Now, not now. But it was a very funny mindset that I had as, a, as an eight-year-old in Thailand. Look, young kids are very, like, wild, so I can't blame <laughs> you for having that sort of mindset. Indeed. Well, Farina, how about you tell us about the legal scoop for this week? All right, well, as we know, here on The Bar's Legal Scoop, we have a wide variety of different and interesting legal facts that we come up with. So every time it's my turn, I do like to spice it up with... A really absurd legal fact that is a product of a possibly outdated um, law, um, which is exactly what I've done for today's legal scoop. So, um, did you know that in the state of Victoria, it is actually considered an offence to make an unreasonable level of noise with a vacuum cleaner after 10pm or before 7am on weekends, as well as before 9am on weekends. So this is in accordance with Section 48A of the Environment Protection Act 1970 that they have in Victoria, as well as the Regulation 6 Environment Protection Act, um, again, in in Victoria. Um, And police or the council can actually order you to stop making noise. And if you fail to abide, um, this can result in a fine of up to $18,655.20. And, um, and there's also an additional fine of up to $4,663.80 per day of continued violations. Wow. So, yeah, I don't think these sort of laws really exist outside of Australia. But while reading up and researching this one, I found that in parts of Switzerland, you can't even flush your toilet after 10 p.m. So, like, it's it's only forbidden. Yeah, like, it's not government mandated or anything, but landlords in Switzerland are given free reign um, to, you know, set their own house rules. So they could possibly sort of turn your agreement around or change something up if you're causing disturbance after 10 p.m. in the bathroom, which is a bit... You know, it's sort of sad that you kind of have to constrict yourself from not going after 10 p.m. That's, like, very interesting because it's not like, you know, your body stops wanting to go to the toilet between the hours of 
10 p.m. and whatever hour it starts again. Exactly. So that's that's very interesting. But another thing that I think is really funny, and this might there might be an easy answer to this, mm-hmm. but like the oddly specific nature of some of these monetary fines that like that they can impose like for whatever violation of whatever legislation or rule or whatever like for example you said you know if you're if you're doing the vacuum cleaner noises (laughs) inside the forbidden hours you could get a fine of up to eighteen thousand six hundred and fifty five dollars and 20 cents cents? that's what puts me over the edge like what's the i mean in the scope of things like what does that 20 cents mean like that's what i was thinking you know i it might be something to do with like penalty units or whatever yeah um that you know adjusted for inflation or whatnot Mm. um but man like but it's so like specific (laughs) as well do they really need the extra 20 cents like haven't you taken enough (laughs) stuff for the 20 cents $18,655. $18,655. I think, you know, you could invest in one of the state-of-the-art quiet vacuum cleaners for that price. Yeah, exactly. Like Might. a Dyson. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, that's a very interesting legal fact. I was going to um, make a joke about vacuum cleaners, but I don't think I should. <laughs> yeah, I, don't know. I have no idea what this joke could entail. Well, I don't know, because it would suck. <laughs> <laughs> I've got another one in my head as well. <laughs> I don't know if I should say it. <laughs> I mean, go on. What did the vacuum cleaner salesman say to someone on the floor that was laying down? Um, I, I don't know, actually. Dyson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's all I have. Oh, no. My horrible puns are done. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, you got me with that first one there. <laughs> I, I wasn't ready for that. And I wanted to, like, set it up, and I was, like, <laughs> hoping you'd be, like, why? Did you, like, say something? And I'd be, like, oh, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I was so cool of God there. <laughs> very much so. Well, Perina, I think we have a very, very cool guest for us today, actually. We might have forgotten to mention that earlier. We do. In the program. Yeah, we didn't mention it at the start, because we did want to save the best for the last. So... <laughs> Uh, today's guest, many of you might actually know him as a lecturer and subject coordinator for 70211 Contracts. Um, before he became a lecturer, though, Chris was a scholarly teaching fellow at UTS, having a having completed a Bachelor of Arts um, from the University of Newcastle and a Bachelor of Law from UTS. Chris Cruz certainly has a great deal of experience as an academic. Yeah, and he's, uh, I've also got him for remedies this semester, so it'll be cool to have him on the show. Welcome, Chris Cruz. Welcome, Chris. It's amazing to have you. We were ranting and raving about your remedies um, subject structure earlier in the season, and now you're finally oh, you. here. So <laughs> what, are we uh, Are we profits? What's the go? <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Made it happen. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely to have you and to, to chat. Um, but I guess we'll start with asking you the most important question uh, that we ask all of our guests, and that is, who would you take to the bar and why? Yeah, right. So I thought that this was the hardest question to answer. <laughs> um, and I couldn't think of anyone to take to the bar in a courtroom um, mm. because that's not really where I'd like to be. <laughs> <laughs> so I settled on the bar in the sense of go for a drink. Yeah. And um, I don't think, uh, if your audience is other law students, I don't think they'll get the reference, but Rick Mayle, who is dead, so I wouldn't be able to go with him anyway. But Rick Mayle, um, a comedian, English comedian, very prevalent in the 80s and 90s, is who I'd like to go to a bar with. I think it'd be a lot mm-hmm. of fun. He was a duo with um, Adrian Edmondson, who is who is still alive. 
Um, so I'd be happy to go with Aid as well. I just think that'd be a lot of fun. So they were um, best known for the young ones. I don't know if that's ringing any bells or at least for the listeners. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> and Bottom. I actually, there's a few references to Bottom in my Canvas site and emails. You would have seen Rick Mail if you've had me as a coordinator. You might not have appreciated it was Rick Mail, but you would have seen him. <laughs> Well, look, I certainly got all the Scream references. Here I was thinking you might bring Sam Raimi to the bar or something like that. Ah, uh, look, it's more that I feel like I know Rick more. Like, I've just seen a lot more of Rick performing. I don't know what Sam Raimi is like. Um, yeah. But if we're going to talk horror film directors, I would be interested to talk to John Carpenter. Of course. Um, the uh, Thing? Sorry. The, the Thing, yeah. The yep. Thing. Prince of Darkness, I think, is my favourite. But yeah, it was going to be an entertainer. Like, I don't know if it's just my age, but my mind kept going back to television series that I watched in the 80s and have a lot of affection for. Dawn French, Jennifer Saunders, Ruby Wax, any of that. Any of the mm. Doctors, Peter Davison, Tom Baker. Did you say there was a new Doctor? I think so. As in after, you mean Jodie, following on from Jodie Whittaker? Yeah, very, uh, very just recent. Just came out, I yeah. think. I forgot his name. It's, um, I, I mean, I, I've got it in my head. I've got the words there, but I don't want to butcher the pronunciation. I think it's Nkadi. It's he was in, similar. He was in a Netflix a, show. He is in a Netflix show, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, he's a new doctor now. Yeah, right. I, I've stopped watching the new ones. I don't know why. I think, I think it sort of coincided with me regularly, like, not watching television anymore. There was a period in the 2000s to 2010s where I just stopped watching television mm. and went, you know, Netflix and was all internet-based, and I think I just lost that pattern. Chris, I'll ask you what your interesting or recent legal fact is that you've come across. Ah, interesting and depressing, and you're probably <laughs> aware of it. So for a very brief moment, the federal court found that the Minister for the Environment owed a duty of care to young people to take into account the effect of of climate change when approving coal mines. And within, I think it was a matter of weeks, snuffed out, gone. Mm. The full federal court overturned it. But it's out there now, and maybe it'll spark some other lawfare litigation to get some change, but yeah. Mm. Do you know if that's gone to the high court? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. No, I've not read anything, but I wouldn't be surprised if they try. I was reading some commentary this morning, and one of the judges remember which one uh said look it's not for us the federal court to create these new sort of quite important novel duties of care it's for the high court and some people have interpreted that as the judge saying take it to the high court Mm. as opposed to you know Mm. slapping down the the trial judge so we'll see we'll see interesting to be fair i haven't read the judgments um but still you know i think um current composition of the high court and this is not really based on a whole lot of thing than following you know some of the cases that have been coming out but they seem very reluctant to make law as yeah. a as the composition of the high court you know you don't have your kirby's there who are always dissenting they seem to very much like to rest the power with the executive instead of you know reviewing things like that i read a recent decision about the deportation of a south sudanese man who had um, been convicted of um of assault of some sort, a 12-month prison sentence. So, you know, the current government goes, all right, great, we're going to cancel your visa. And I think it was the majority of the High Court held, yep, that's fine, even though the South Sudanese man, if he was to be sent back to South Sudan, was going to be, like, persecuted. Yeah. You know, he right. you know he claims tortured and, uh, and killed, which wasn't actually in dispute. They accepted that representation. And so he had, I think it was Justice Edelman who dissented, and the first title was uh, 
I think it was like a sentence of death or something. Oh, wow. Um, is sending him back to South Sudan. So I thought it was very interesting that the current High Court doesn't really want to take any steps to keep the executive in check, perhaps. Um, but I guess, you know, they're the ones who are the pre- preeminent legal minds of, of Australia. So yeah. who am I to judge as a, as a law student? But I just think it's an interesting observation. Yeah, I, I've read in commentary that I've read on private law cases, um, there's been... It, the, the court's been criticised for being very black letter, as you say, which is fine. I mean, f- and I, I think it's legitimate, like it's a, a fair view. What is the role of the High Court? It's to uh, apply the law as it is. That's one view, not make it as such. So, I mean, if it does, if this one does go to the High Court, I don't know that they're, they're going to get a win. Um, mm. the, the the environment case, I don't think, that, I'm not sure that they'd get a win. But still, sometimes the value of these even lost cases is it's out there mm. it's out there it's a spotlight and maybe that leads to some sort of change if not now in the future and if the change does come in the future hopefully it's not too late yeah, yeah i think it's one of those unfortunate situations where as you said the change coming on into the future you might actually have to wait for these high court judges to retire new ones to come along yes and then have the sort of mindset to actually create laws that benefit the people of tomorrow yeah yeah um yeah, and also we've had uh, how many years now of a conservative government, so I don't think it's surprising if they've had the opportunity to fill high court positions. I mean, this is probably very, very general, broad opinion, but perhaps conservative government has resulted in more black letter judges. Yeah, mm. and so they, and again, I'm not rightly or wrongly, they say that they see their role is as we don't make law, we look at what the law is and we apply it. Yep, and mm. that, could, that could be a fair view. I mean, um, you know, the High Court's not elected. It's not like Parliament. Um, once they're there, they're there. So is it, mm. you know, is it appropriate for an unelected body to just make up laws as they see fit? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting sort of proposition. And I think, you know, for example, Justice Edelman was appointed by a Conservative government, but we were fortunate enough to actually chat to Michael Kirby on the, on the bar a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we asked him this question, you know, what is your position on judges making law? And he said, you know, I'm sort of roughly paraphrasing him here, is that English is like an ambiguous language. Yeah. And so yeah. you can take that ambiguity and sort of shape it into the best outcome possible. But obviously his colleagues did not agree with him because he's, you know, the great dissenter. Making him the great dissenter, yeah. Well, yeah, but uh, the, the concept of the best outcome possible is also contested. So his idea of best outcome possible just might be shared by other people. I mean, they, maybe mm. they thought that they're... You know, judgment was the best outcome possible. Exactly. exactly. That's a whole another point as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I would be interested to hear about is uh, is your career path. So I guess, you know, your journey through law school, um, you know, and then how you got to academia. Okay. Um, happy to share that. So it was a long, I don't know if it was winding, but it was a long road. I, I mean, you went through the introduction with me and as your dear listeners will know, uh, <laughs> I did um, uh, an arts degree first. It was a nice degree, Bachelor of, Bachelor of Arts Communication Studies, yeah. That was at the University of Newcastle. And I came out of that with a major in video production. And I wanted to do something sort of in movies, video, something creative like that. Mm. I went into that degree straight out of high school at the behest of my parents. Uh, they didn't go to university, and they were, but they were very much of the view, you've got to go to university. Um, mm. And so I sort of went in not with much life experience, and I enjoyed the degree. When I came out, I just bummed around in Newcastle, where I grew up for a year before looking into a job. And then I got a job down here um, 
in Sydney at a film production company and I was there for six months and I thought, no, plan B. I had the marks <laughs> to get into law the first time. I think I remember my mum was disappointed that I didn't choose law. I had the marks to get in the first time, so I thought, all right, I'll go to law. And I looked around. UTS was the only university that, that offered uh, the core subjects in the evening for people mm. who were working. And so that was my, that's how I made my decision to come to UTS. I got a job at the University of Sydney in an administrative role um, to fund me. Mm. So I was working full-time at the University of Sydney, just a general middle-of-the-road administrative role, very defined, nine to five, so I knew when I had to work. It wasn't too stressful. Uh, and so I, I was in no rush to finish the law degree. I was happy to do it part-time because um, my view was I'd rather do it slow and steady and focus on each subject and do as well as I can, have the space to do as well as I can. Mm. So it took me about eight years to finish. Was it eight years? I'm sure I started 2002. And as I was saying before, um, I had Anita as the dean, the current dean. She taught me legal process and history. Mm. I think I, I must have finished about 2006, 2007. And I just did my day job through that. Coming towards the end of my degree, and also working at the University of Sydney is where I got my appreciation. I think I'm just a public service person. Yeah. <laughs> I like brown cardigans and routine, nine to five. I like the conditions of public service. Like for me, mm. work-life balance is very, very important. Very, very important. I like to know this is when I'm working, this is when I'm not. Mm. So I've got a taste for that. Towards the end of my degree, I thought, okay, I need to start getting experience in the law. And so I wrote to the, I've forgotten the name of it, New South Wales, is it Solicitor General? New, New South Wales Solicitor's Office? So the New South Wales Solicitor, hmm. um, who essentially is the in-house counsel for the New South Wales government. Right, right. It's not the Attorney General's department. Hmm. Um, it probably It probably comes in there somewhere. Like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, public, New South Wales government, the New South Wales Solicitor, who handles all manner of either litigation for the government or defending litigation against the government. A lot mm. of it was private. It, it, it was distinct from prosecutions, DPP. Mm. Um, anyway, mm. I got a job there for a year as a paralegal. I actually don't remember much about it. Remember, actually, <laughs> no, I do remember that um, they would send me down to the Supreme Court to appear in front of a judge for directions and things. And mm. I hated that. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing bad happened. And all, like, I, it wasn't, there was never going to be contentious. Um, and I didn't have to, it's not like I had to make submissions or anything. Mm. The only reason I was being sent is because the, the government was putting in a submitting appearance mm. to say essentially, yeah, we're here, Your Honour, but we'll just do whatever you, you know, whatever happens. We'll go with it. Mm. Um, but I, I just hated it. I hated appearing before the judge. So there I'm starting to get my taste of, or my insight into, I don't think I'm going to be in litigation. <laughs> and did that for a year. Then I got a job. I was the then president of the Court of Appeal, Justice Mason. Took, took me on as his tip staff. And I was going to start that in 2008. But mm. before that, a few months before that, he telephoned me and said, I'm really sorry, Chris, I've decided to retire. <laughs> so, oh. yeah. So he said, but don't worry, I'll shop around and find someone, that you, uh, find another judge for you. And so I got mm. to work for uh, his honour, Justice Breton, who is now in the Court of Appeal. Back then he was um, at the trial level. Um, and he was also the chap who wrote the that report on, on war, the crimes. war crimes. Yeah. The Brereton report. The Brereton report. Oh. Yeah. I thought that name sounded familiar. It sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was him. He, because he was, he, he's got one foot in the military. I, oh, again, I'm going to do him a disservice 
but he, he's got a, a senior role in the military as well. Mm. A lot of judges do actually, which is um, surprising, but not surprising. I think to be a judge, to some extent you do have to have, and maybe I'm mischaracterizing this terribly, but the military mindset in that, right, decision has to be made. There you go, decision made. Mm. You know, that kind of... Very disciplined sort of way yeah, of thinking. Yeah, yeah, and just make the decision and move on. You want to move away from the classic law student answer, well, it depends. Yeah, yeah. like the actually, emotional aspect of it all. Yeah, you want to actually land on something concrete. Well, you have to. Yeah. It's your job. Yeah. Like, you are the judge. That's why yeah. you've got to make a decision. <laughs> anyway, so I worked for Justice Breton for a year, and that was good. And then I applied for and got a job at what was then known as Mallison Stephen Jakes, which is now King Wood Mallison's. Mm. And I got in through the graduate program. I didn't get a clerkship. Mm. And I don't know if these days there's much of a graduate program anymore. Um, no, I think most of the, yeah, most of the intake, if not all, comes through clerkships. And that's, yeah. that's for a lot of the big firms nowadays. Um, they typically fill all their grads quite early through the clerkship process. And then, I don't know, some of them do a bit of ad hoc recruitment outside of that mm. um you know say if a clerk clerks with them and then says actually i don't want to work for you you know then they've got to fill that spot with someone yeah right but yeah it's it's less about grads now but anyway keep going oh that's right. well um i i get the impression that i i was the intake before the gfc the uh, global financial crisis and mm. i get the imp- i think that i was the last of the really big intakes mm. by the major firms i think after that um the, that's when the amalgamations with global change mm. started to occur and I think the graduates and clerkship intake started to shrink after that. Mm. Um, anyway, so I was there, I worked in the property investments section for one year and one day. Um, I've said this to all my, anyone who's asked, I, I didn't enjoy it. I don't want to badmouth Mallison's, just like, I don't want people to take away from that, Mallison's is bad, never worked there. Mm. No, I think um, it was as much my personality as the nature of the work. Um, I went eyes wide open because I thought to myself, because as I said, I acquired a taste for public service kind of university environments, but I thought I can't, like I should try it to see because, mm. you know, maybe I'll get in there and really thrive. But no, I didn't really thrive. I didn't <laughs> like it. Um, so I stayed for one year and one day. One year and one day so I could keep my bonus for joining. <laughs> and then I quit. So I only did one, back then it was two year rotate, two one year rotations. I did my first one and I thought, oh, I don't want to. My second rotation was in mergers and acquisitions, and I thought, you know what, not me. Mm. And so, yeah, got out. And I actually took a, a leap of faith there because I had no job to go to. And after that, I was happy to just find something easy to do um, so that I could continue living in Sydney. And I thought, well, you know what, I used to really like working in a university. I'll see if there are any university jobs going. And so I got in contact with a contact from the University of Sydney who said, there's actually, I've seen there's some positions going in the faculty of law at UTS. Mm. So I applied for that and I got that. That was admin support. So I don't know, some of either yourselves or some of your dear listeners might have dealt with people who support the core subjects. Worked in that team for a year because I was, I was backfilling for maternity leave. And at the same time, I, I thought, I wonder what it's like to teach. Mm. And contracts was my favorite subject back at UTS. And so I got in contact with the coordinator who taught me. And she said, yes, I remember you. And yes, we're looking for teachers. So why don't you start teaching? Wow. <laughs> yeah. So wow. I started working in admin at UTS Law and teaching contracts at UTS Law simultaneously, but through slightly different paths. Wow. 
Yeah, and then after that, I just um, empire built, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, the admin role was backfilling someone who was on parental leave, and then another position came up, and I was offered that job, and then the, that job I stuck around in for a year or two, and then that was made into a permanent part time position. So I thought, great, mm. I've got some form of permanency, and that that and simultaneously I was teaching in contracts, started teaching in other subjects as well. And then for a period from, say, 2010 to 2015, I had my day job, which was the permanent part-time admin role, Mm. and I was, by this stage, not just teaching, but also coordinating um, some of the core subjects. And then the opportunity came to apply for what was called a scholarly teaching fellow position, um, Mm. which was a purely teaching-focused role, permanent, full-time, and that's what I went for. So that would have been about... 2015, I think I started in 2016 with that one. Uh, I did that for a year or two, and then the option was then the option was given to me to convert that to lecturer, um, education focused academic, mm. which is my current role. And the benefit of that was I'm now on the if I want to, I can go from lecturer up through to professor. The scholarly teaching fellow sort of was permanent position, but set out on its own. That was it. Mm. So now, if I want to, I can progress up the ladder. And I've been doing that, must be about three years now. Yeah, something like that. Um, And so my role is still very much teaching. Um, So my role isn't about publishing research externally and getting grants or anything like that. My first focus is teaching. So I think that answers the question was my career path. Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. That's a, that's very a very cool sort of outline of how very you got to where you are now. Yeah. Yeah, it just felt very organic. It's not like I had a plan. Hmm. I, I, I don't know if my path was typical, but um, I think for a lot of people, their career is really just a series of coincidences and happen. You fall in like you fall into something, and then it's just that'll mm. take you somewhere. Sometimes it's a straight line. Sometimes it's you know yeah a few left and right turns. Yeah. I think it's interesting though because some of it seems to be coincidence, but also there's a couple of times where you wrote to people. And or like reached out to connections and and managed to get a job that way, like of your own initiative. You know, not just searching job ads, but like you know, going yeah. after people specifically and seeing, okay, you know, what do you have for me? Yeah, that, that's true. I suppose uh, that 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 uh, choice was made when I left Mallison's. Uh, up until then, or was it? No, you're right. Because with with my um, being offered the position with Justice Mason, it's because I was at UTS with the tip staff who was going to finish up when I was supposed oh. to take over. And so mm. she put in a good word for me. So yeah, you're right, actually. Maybe it's more contact, more based on contacts, I think. Certainly my job at University of Sydney, I just applied cold publicly, yeah. you know, doing a submission. Um, UTS, I did go through the form, like the, the, the admin role when I first started in 2010. I did apply as if I were a cold, you know, a, m- a member of the public. It's just because a contact of mine said, oh, I've seen this advertised that mm. I was put onto it. But the teaching side, which has become my permanent role, was, yeah, based on a contact and just mm. getting in contact with them and saying, what have you got? Yeah. But also, I mean, when you landed your paralegal role for the Solicitor General's office, you just wrote to the Solicitor General. That's true, actually. Yeah. I think I'm, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. And, like, there's, that's such a good piece of advice for our current law students as well to actually like take initiative and network because I think nowadays yeah everyone's just on LinkedIn or YouTube's careers or anything but yeah you like you can always do the old-fashioned letter and send that through yeah Yeah. right I mean whether my experience in the early well mid to late 2000s is 
going to be as productive as or as you know fruitful as today i don't mm. know yeah the landscape's changed slightly i, well, I think uh, my understanding is the tip staff landscapes changed a lot like students looking for tip staff positions just because uh, remember the associate for justice britain saying it just in the last couple of years it's just exploded so um before that each judge did their own thing there was no formal process um because really only the people applying were those who said i want to be a barrister mm. um but then word got around that this is something that judges do and then everyone um and also, it looks good. You know, I work mm. for this judge. Judge, yeah. And yeah, its popularity's gone through the roof. So I don't know if these days it's much more like there's a you know a website and you mm. put your submission in, or if you still just write to the each individual judge yeah. and say, you know, can you take me on? I don't know. Interesting. Maybe something worth uh, researching for our dear listeners. If you wish to be a tip staff slash yeah. um, assistant to a magistrate, or I think there's a proper word for that. I think we spoke to Mr. Kirby about this as well. He sort of touched on, you know, him finding his, like, next associate somewhere at UTS, sitting in the front row kind of thing. Oh, so yeah. he talked about that as well. He does love UTS, though, and we love him. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so I guess uh, if, you know, say a student was interested in, uh, in developing a career in academia, would you have any recommendations, you know, as your path was, you know, very much unique, Say someone wanted to graduate and then go straight into academia. Do you have, would you have any recommendations for that? Or? Mm, interesting. So it depends on what the student wants to do. Um, if it's just teaching, I think it'll be harder to find permanent positions because the emphasis these days really is on research, research mm. and bringing in research dollars. I've been quite lucky. But if you were just interested in teaching, then uh, don't be afraid to write to the faculty or wherever, it doesn't have to be UTS obviously, it could be any faculty, because um, there's always demand for casual teachers, and just indicate your interest. And obviously it would help that you've done well in the subject that you're indicating that you mm. want to teach in. And perhaps like me, there's always gaps to be filled, you don't know when you'll be tapped. Um, if Once you get to start teaching, that's when you develop more contacts, get known to the faculty, um, and then can expand outwards from there. And then maybe it will become, you might have the opportunity to become a full-time teaching lecturer and if you do go down that path a lot of academics who are on the teaching track end up taking on significant administrative roles in the faculty so uh, the associate dean for um, education or it's probably the highest you can go Um, not sure whether you'd also get to dean but never say never i suppose (laughs) Um, but internal director positions seems that keep the faculty functioning Um, you're expected to because one part of the role of an academic is service Mm. so that is not just doing the teaching as such but also helping out in some way whether that's university administration faculty administration uh, getting involved with the LSS things like that so a teaching academic um, I think a great place to start would be to try and get some casual teaching and plenty of we get a lot of interest from practitioners so people who are working somewhere else they might be a solicitor they might be doing anything else they might be working for the government whatever, um, often we get people uh, who come forward who just want to do a class because I've seen a few people say, I want to give back. Um, a few people just enjoy keeping an eye on the law and how it's developing. Because one thing I found, I mean, my one year in Mallison's um, is probably not representative of what the life of a lawyer is like, but what the law is and thinking about the law just didn't seem to be 
part of it. It was form filling and, you know, a lot of admin work. Very practical. Yeah. Yeah. And so for some people who want to keep an eye on the law and think about cases and things like that, casual teaching can be an outlet. So, yeah, if you want to be a teaching academic, I'd recommend putting your hand up for some casual teaching, uh, particularly if you do, I mean, perhaps like me, if you um, did get along with a particular teacher, um, you can approach them and say, do you know, is there any teaching coming up in your subject? Because um, that's often the way people we find casual teachers. Also, um, I know UTS, and I'm sure other universities as well, if you go to the law website, you, there's a place where you can submit your interests um, to teach. Research-wise, uh, you're looking at doing postgraduate study. So you'll, well, number one, you'll want to have enjoyed studying law. <laughs> if you haven't enjoyed studying law, I don't know that you'll necessarily find more joy in teaching it. But then, you know, plenty of people who don't enjoy studying law go, go out and actually do it, and they love it because it's real and concrete, and it's not just, you know, wading through cases. But if you want to be a researcher, then yes, you will need to do postgraduate research. And the bar is getting higher and higher. So when I started doing my casual teaching, um, there was already mutterings about, you know, you could do a master's and get an academic position. Now it's, you've got to have done a PhD. And I remember one colleague a few years ago, he's no longer here, saying that uh, he was sitting on a panel for an appointment and everyone had a PhD. And then, then the conversation between the panellists was, well, you know, they did their PhD here. What about this one who was, you know, initially at a better university? Mm. So, yeah. Uh, and a PhD, I've, I've not attempted it. Um, I don't know that I want to attempt it. Um, but it's a big commitment. I remember some advice I got was, Chris, if you're going to do a PhD, you want to love the subject when you start because you are going to hate it. <laughs> by the time you get to the other end yeah so there's going to be postgraduate research how you would fund that that period could be a multitude of ways you might want to look into scholarships i don't I, this is a bit of guesswork here but i was thinking about this um staying in contact with the academics often research assistant roles come up working for academics who have got research funding and have money to pay someone to help them i'm not sure how the faculty if the faculty like casual teachers has a, a a page you can go to where you can register your interests but maybe keeping an eye out or if it's advertised by the faculty anywhere um, keep an eye out for research assistant roles and that way you stay in contact with researchers and more likely you'd be working on actual research and getting a sense mm. of what's involved in research and maybe something will come from that maybe some teaching would come from that and you get you get your foot in the door I'm not sure that I have anything more to add than that uh, it, it, it might actually be worthwhile interview like speaking to a research lecturer a research academic who might mm. have more insight into that yeah that would make sense yeah just going from that as well um, would you know any proactive methods that um, undergraduate students right now studying law could take if they want to go down this path let's say like three, four years after graduating, like in the future? Like. Um, oh, right. Uh, again, uh, it, it, it may well be worthwhile to go out and do some work because that can also be a way in. Going out and getting practical experience, whether it's practising the law itself or going to a government department and getting behind policy. Because a lot of research dollars, I think, are really sort of directed towards law reform and things like that as opposed to just thinking about you know, black letter law and legal theory and things. Not, not wanting to discount that, but um, mm. particularly with diminishing sort of research funding available from the government and things, a lot of research dollars seems to be tied to co like so-called concrete outcomes. Yeah. Mm. 
Um, so going out and getting experience in the real world, real world um, is a good idea. Um, and it might just also sharpen your research angle. Like, what are you going to do? What, what interests mm -hmm. you? Yeah. Um, it can be hard to come up with something if you haven't sort of been out there and seen what the problems are. So you go out there and get some work. Um, I mean, people who, I, when, when ad academic roles are advertised, uh, people who have just practiced do apply for it for those who want to change. So that is possible. But beyond that, I'm not sure that I could, again, maybe, you know, keeping one foot in the door and just doing some teaching on the side could be a way to sort of get to know people. Mm. Um, build those yeah. connections. Yeah, build the connections. Yeah. Just getting as much ex exposure as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess to uh, to wrap up our uh, our interview here, I would love to hear. And of course, you know we're coming up uh, on exams. Uh, last week we did an episode on sort of exam tips and tricks. Um, but Prina and I are good at saying things and not so much doing them. Right. We're great um, at giving unsolicited advice, yeah. but not yeah. following it as much. So right. I guess in you know in very short form, you know, what would you, what would, what advice would you have to students coming up on exams, um, you know, in the coming weeks? Uh, the best thing you can do is get to know the law, number one, and get to know the cases, number two. Yeah. Mm. Um, because the, you need, you obviously need to know the law, yeah, to see the legal problems in the facts. And often the cases are an excellent way to demonstrate how the law can apply. I don't know if other uh, lecturers are the same, but um, often I use leading cases as inspiration for problem questions. I was just about to say that I've noticed in class that like often the problem questions we work on are very analogous to cases that have actually come, you know, before the courts. Yeah, and with like with with some differences to promote discussion. Yeah. Uh, in terms of how do you get to know the law really well? Well, when I when when I did my law degree, it was all invigilated on campus handwritten exams and so by uh, I was forced to have a really good set of notes to take into the exam for quick reference mm. and that process of me taking what I had learned and then creating a document that I could navigate quickly um, you know creating my categories you, you um, uh, what's it called not menu I've Table of contents. Tabs, diagrams, things to spark my memory, force me to engage with the material, think about how I'm going to transform it into something digestible, then write it down. And just that process embedded so much. Yeah. I don't know what it's like today, but <coughs> excuse me. I suspect if all students are dealing with uh, is with images on a screen, you don't have that process of tactile interaction taking what's on the screen put converting it into another form um, I think that the inform yes there's lots of information but I don't know without that backup of conversion and engagement and recreating something else uh, I don't know what retention's like hmm. yeah because information without of course understanding what's actually on there and then applying that it's not useful when you have a six-hour exam, but you're recommended two hours. You're not going to know what you're doing. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think that if you take that information and you've put it into some sort of different form before, you're not faffing around yeah. during yeah. the exam because you'll go, hang on, what was that point? You've got a really well-tabulated document. You open it up. Ah, oh, yes, that's right. Mm. That's what I think. 
Yeah, and yeah. what we said last week was you can't rely on your mate's notes because you didn't put them together. Mm. Exactly. Like, you need to actually do them yourself to, one, learn the content that you're putting into the notes, and two, know how to decipher it when you're in the exam and need that reference. Yeah, exactly. I think the ownership of the notes, and that's why I was always driven... Like, notes were a thing back when I was studying as well. It was hard copy, but, you know, people could say, oh, do you want, do you want a set of notes? But I always said, no, I, I want to do it myself because... I just, like, I just want to, like, I, I want to know my document back to front mm. and I want yeah. to understand it myself. Um, so that's what I always did. Mm. So that's my advice. And that, so my advice is get to know the law really well. How do you do that? I, th- I urge you to be drawing diagrams and taking, like, doing, like, you know, sometimes limitations can help. Like, all right, I'm going to take this information. What are the key points? I'm going to make a one-page summary. All right. And then you're making decisions about, well, that's important, that's not important, that's important. Mm. And just getting to know the material. Makes and follow the sense. instructions as well. That's not really a preparation thing, but follow the instructions. Make yeah. sure you read them. I think we've yeah. all made a mistake. Like we that have, before. and like, you know, how to sort of title your document when you're submitting it. All the little stuff that you don't worry about, but when it's five minutes before submitting, you're sort of crying mm-hmm. about it. Yeah well, yeah, well, that's my other advice as well. If you've got a 12 hour period, I say do it in the morning. And then go and have a break, and then come back and reread it in the afternoon. Yeah, mm-hmm. fresh mind helps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because the distance is important. Because when often when you're in the midst of it, you don't see the errors. Mm. And then if you go away for an hour, do something completely different. Number one, often while you're doing something completely different, out of the blue, you go, "Oh my god, I just remembered something." The wheels <laughs> yeah. are turning. Still. Yeah, in the background. Yeah, mm. and then also when you come back and you read it, you go, "Oh yeah, right." There's an obvious error there, or yeah. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And double check your submission. Of course. Yeah. I found. Grammar check. Yeah, if you read it out loud, you'll uh, notice a lot more of the grammatical or like phrasing errors that, you know, make your writing seem a bit more persuasive if you can fix them. Yeah, and there's like a function on Word where you can get it to read out what you've said. So, you know, if you're sort of just taking a break, you can actually listen to what you've oh, yeah, written. Right. Yeah. yeah, cool. Wow. Technology, huh? Yes. <laughs> no, but when I say double check, I mean you've submitted the paper, then go back and make sure you've submitted the wrong Oh, right, right, yeah. right, okay. Because there is always one who submits the wrong exam response. Oh, no. <laughs> no. I think I can imagine myself doing that. Oh, no. <laughs> I haven't. I haven't yet. No, don't jinx it. Not yet. I won't jinx it. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us for Season 3, Episode 12 of The Bar. We hope you've had a good time today. Thank you, I have. Yes, it was very interesting. Thank you. Amazing. It's been amazing chatting. Well, I've been Brayden. I've been Perina. I've been Chris. And I still am. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next week at the happiest... Actually, not next week. It'll we'll see be, you soon. We'll see you soon at the happiest happy hour. See ya.